This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... In-game reward. How Ken picks games. Persuasive cartography. And Hobby Lobby's Sumerian tablets. Just because something isn't widely known doesn't mean it isn't true. Why, that's one of the entire themes of this here show. In Atlas Games' new cooperative deck-building board game, Witches of the Revolution, you play a coven of witches. You and your allies must deploy your powers to make sure the American Revolution succeeds. And the hated British are cast forever out of these United States. Just like it really happened. Witches of the Revolution is a truly cooperative game without traitor mechanics or backdoor winners, and every player can can influence the outcome every turn. It's a subtly different deck builder where adding more cards to your deck can be as perilous as it is helpful. So you have to make good choices. Witches work together to overcome events like the rise of witch hunters, the seizure of printing presses, and enchanted cannons slipping into enemy hands. Overcoming events helps the coven fulfill objectives like resurrecting Benjamin Franklin or curing Paul Revere of lycanthropy. Fulfill four objectives to win the game and ensure the success of the revolution. Download the rulebook, read more, or check out video reviews at atlas-games.com slash W-O-T-R. Or leave immediately for your local game store. Before it's taken over by the hated British. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the friendly confines of the Gaming Hut. And here in the Gaming Hut, we're all very excited because we're about to get experience points. Only perhaps, perhaps, Robin, we're not so excited. Perhaps we're blasé, or perhaps we came to the table for something other than the zero-to-hero gerbil pellet that is the experience point as she is commonly practiced. Uh, you are raring, I think, uh, to the extent one can rare to talk about this topic. You are raring to talk about... <laughs> we, we rare about all our topics here. That's Raring is in our, our mission statement. Is it? Yes. All right. I'm, I'm going to go back and rare about a couple of topics. But for now, let us both rare to talk about whether or not gamers writ large care about experience points. And I think what the question has to begin by saying is, since... Gamers writ large are all playing D&D, 90% of them probably. What we mean is, is the 10% of gamers who are not playing D&D writ large less motivated by in-game rewards? Am, am I right here? I, I'm even willing to expand the remit of this discussion. What? Uh, uh, an, an inveterate remit expander that I am. You are. Uh, to ask if today's uh, D&D players love experience points... As uh, as much as the D&D players of yore. Well, I would be fascinated to find out if you have any grounding whatsoever to expand our remit back to that. But, yes, picture me, chin on hands, gazing rapturously across the table, listening for your information on that topic. Well, uh, for example, the, the honchos of today's D&D, Jeremy Crawford, revealed on Twitter recently that with his group, he doesn't... Uh, you know, they don't really track experience points. They just decide when it's appropriate to go up a level narratively, uh, which seems uh, like it would be something that would have uh, Gary spinning 
in his in, in his grave, or at least the thirteen year old kids who were turned on to the original wave of D and D would uh, regard that. Uh, with uh, with bafflement and uh, suspicion. And but also, indeed, I mean, Jeremy Crawford, and those of you who don't know him uh, are missing a, a bet, but Jeremy Crawford strikes me as the guy whose game group is all sort of um, uh, uh, loose adults, who, who are veterans, who've seen it all, and uh, they are just there for the uh, beauty of the story that Jeremy weaves, and experience points may not matter to them, but Jeremy Crawford's group surely cannot represent the median gamer. Uh, well, certainly not. Uh, but there are certain uh, tendencies and and uh, cultural impulses that filter down to the median gamer, and also there are uh, ways that the treatment of the experience point, even in D and D, has evolved over time. So, for That's example, true. the original implicit assumption, I think, although sometimes there are a lot of you know that D and D is not just ever what is in the rule books; it's also what is in the general culture of what people do. But A D and D, the original you know first edition. The assumption was is that everybody was separately getting experience points. And so they were in a way in competition with one another. And also, if your character uh, died off, that you would start over at first level and have to work your way back. And, uh, and that meant that there, or even though there was, uh, obviously there's a curve in experience points in, in first edition, uh, that you could, you could catch up. Because you would get a piece of the bigger monsters that you were cowering from while the more powerful uh, characters uh, fought the ogres or bugbears or young dragons or whatever it was. That eventually, you know, you would catch up. But you would still be behind the curve permanently. And you'd be behind the curve permanently in other in-game rewards, not just experience points, uh, like uh, piles of gold, for example. And I remember this vividly from my uh, years as a... Uh, grade school and then high school uh, DM, which is, you know, my younger brother uh, was very good at not getting killed. And uh, all of the other players were uh, not so good at that, especially since they would kill each other off every so often, uh, teenagers being what they were in those days. And so uh, there would <laughs> Nowadays, be, of course, teenagers are much nicer. Uh, well, maybe so. But at any rate, that the... I find it uh, hard to believe that today's teenagers are nicer than Canadians, Robin. I just don't think that that's possible. Uh, they may... Yeah, it's, they... Uh, an American teenager may be nicer than a median Canadian, but that's a whole other... T I don't even know what that is. Uh, but at any rate... That would be madness. Right. But there is much more of an... Uh, along with a more adversarial uh, DMing uh, versus player culture in those days, uh, the... Or not, not along with, but because of that more adversarial dynamic, the economy over which that conflict waged itself was the experience point. And so... Uh, there was a lot of, uh, you know, you would hear a lot of stuff about, you know, grubbing for experience points. And, oh, here's here's a bunch of centipedes. Well, we're eighth level, but let's kill all the centipedes anyway, because that's six more XP. And I think that overall, it is fair to say that D&D uh, &D culture is now uh, more cooperative. And in the later editions, it encourages you to make sure that the characters all advance together rather than competing with one another and that there's... Uh, and if your character dies, you get another character of the same level to uh, come in. And so the competitive desperation to acquire experience points, I think, has shifted uh, not just culturally, but textually in the uh, mother of all role-playing games, uh, and not just in the 10% of games that uh, you and I uh, get to uh, d design within. 
Um, and I would also argue that the culture of that mindset has affects the remaining design space uh, differently now than it would back then, because certainly to my experience in having experience in games that I get much less player feedback about players who are super focused on getting in-game rewards in order to do things. And uh, I think you much more find people who are uh, just want to go where the logic of the story takes them and are no longer uh, driven to that extent. But there's got to be, you know, as you suggest, gangs of uh, 13-year-olds hanging around together who are still just as fascinated by the prospect of getting one up on the DM, but does it express itself in experience point rubbing, or does it, for example, express itself in character optimization, which is something that takes place pre-game rather than in-game? Mm-hmm. I mean, you are correct, obviously. One of the big shifts in D&D happened, you know, even before uh, this edition, when you no longer got experience points for gold. Uh, that was a big shift. Uh, I forget if that was between first and second or between second and third, but it and, happened. And a removal of a big exploitable croc. Right, yeah. But it also meant that gold had to be its own in-game reward because it was no longer also a metagame reward. So right. that sort of began to move, I think, some people, the people who played by the book, as we, as you just said, people don't always play by the book. People have, bring other stuff to the table. But the notion that you're now you have to do something with that gold as opposed to just use it to buff your your power suite means that you're looking more at internal game developments and less at um uh, can I afford this feat or whatever or it wouldn't have been feats back then but you get my point right much of in my own play my my players and we're doing 13th age now they're fairly focused on in-game improvement and reward in terms of getting feats and uh, raise in the number of spells and things like that, but they are not, uh, because I don't track experience points either. Right? We give, you know, increments, you know, every few fights and, and then level up when something really important has happened. But that's more because I don't like all that bookkeeping than I think that my players would be a- against it. But again, my players, like Jeremy's players, I suspect are, you know, they've been around the block a few times. They've seen some stuff. They don't necessarily need to do the bookkeeping to have the fun of increasing power in play. And I think we need to ask a couple of questions. First of all, are Jeremy's players interested in increasing power within play? And if so, they are motivated by in-game reward. Um, just it's not demarcated as experience points. It's demarcated as time in grade or number of times you read the DM's mind or just uh, you know, something, uh, like that, you know, how many princesses you rescued or something rather than, um, uh, how many centipedes you killed on a, on a very tick offable tick off basis. Because even the most laid back sort of player is maybe going to be interested in, Hey, it's all fun and games being the psionic, but when do I get mind smash as well as mind stab? I like to smash as well as stab. That'd be fun. And those kinds of questions I think are intrinsic just because we are still as designers designing characters that only offer you a small percentage of the fun available from a given play set. And therefore people who look around and can read the rules, um, you know, in the, in the, in the real world, Aragorn is not in the real world in the, in the source <laughs> literature, Aragorn is not concerned about, you know, 
when his basic attack bonus goes up or when he gets a an extra uh, wizard spell, he just sort of Aragorns along. And when he becomes king of Gondor, that's not because he gained a lot of experience in the Battle of Five Armies. It's because that's when it was time to become king of Gondor. So even the notion of gaining new powers within the course of play is not usually something that happens in the source literature, but is always, I think, something that's happening at the table. And that's something that differentiates our our art uh, from other narrative arts. You don't have James Bond, you know, wondering, oh, man, when am I going to get trick shot? He just uses it or he doesn't. Right. And so part of that is that uh, a game that disperses powers and goodies to you over time, that people are still focused on seeing their characters develop. But the question is, uh, as designers, assuming we want to encourage certain actions and behaviors by the players uh, in the course of a game, which you do because you want to reward them for enacting things that evoke the atmosphere and core activity of that, that are conducive game. to good gameplay, certainly. Right. And so how powerful an incentive does that become in a world where uh, either individual players have uh, sort of aged out of wanting to do the bookkeeping and caring that much about experience points. Uh, what other things can we insert into the game to create moments of sort of uh, game behavior where they feel that the rules are interacting with their uh, choices in a fun and rewarding way? So, for example, what uh, the Yellow King role-playing game does with its new version of Quick Shock Gumshoe is it motivates the uh, players not to go and pursue uh, rewards but to uh, get rid of demerits in the form of uh, injury cards and shock cards. And so a lot of, uh, not all of the cards, because that would be unmanageable, but many of them uh, allow you to discard a negative card when you perform a certain action. And that action uh, is described in the cards. And guess what? It impels, those actions impel you to do things that are uh, classic or, or standard or desired actions for a uh, a horror game or an investigative game. So there's a card that you discard uh, when you gain a core clue, or there's a card that you can uh, discard when you go and talk to somebody that everybody else finds scary. And, of course, there are cards that you discard when you kill the vampire who was responsible for giving you uh, that injury. What did you find about, uh, while designing Vampire, about the state of uh, your play t- vampire playtester's uh, interaction with rewards. What what rewards uh, or other sort of calls to action within play did you sprinkle before them and find successful or not? Well, I mean, Vampire is is kind of a special case because Vampire is so much a game focused on hierarchy. In the game, it's utterly of your concern how many what rank you are. In it, it's utterly of your concern how many dots you have in a given discipline, how good you are at at vampiring in a given way. And that is so source baked into the, the, the core actions of play that even though your ability to, to own, you know, uh, city cops or, or uh, take over a nightclub and drink everybody or whatever, it, 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 it doesn't matter at some point. You know, you, once you've got a couple of dots and a discipline, you're basically super, uh, super powered as far as any human folk uh, can perceive. But, Within the, the, the vampire on vampire competition that's the core of play, you wind up with a very strong incentive to increase along those, those discipline lines. And then the, the sort of the trick of designing vampire really is to make the other rewards feel as rewarding as spending, you know, that same amount of experience points on a discipline point, uh, to make you a, a better vampire for vampire on vampire, uh, uh combat. 
So, or contests of all kinds. So that, that's sort of the goal is to find enough rewards so that you can tempt players into taking their eyes off the prize of just becoming more badass vampires. So the internal playtest to the extent is, uh, because so many of it is drawn from people who already know vampire and already are sort of part of that mindset and that milieu. They are very focused on how do we, how do we get to be better, uh, uh, vampires. And even, even before we began designing, we had people saying, Hey, is there a way to in- improve our generation besides killing and eating another vampire? And the answer is, sorry, no, that's the way the world is. But even, uh, because that is such a strong desire, um, we adapted things, we, we adapted the blood potency, uh, points, uh, from Vampire the Requiem and now they're in there. So you can improve the thickness of your blood basically by, uh, by dint of, of, uh, experience and actions in game without necessarily having to really literally break vampire law and dry gulch another vampire and eat him, uh, to get, to go up a, 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 an effectiveness level. So you made the rewards, um, more appealing and accessible. I mean, I don't know how much more appealing they are, but they're certainly more appealing than attacking a more powerful well, vampire. It's more appealing than killing another vampire because that has a huge blowback. But they're definitely more accessible. Um, and, and that's, and that's one of the, one of the goals I think is to provide the taste, if you will, haha, of, uh, in-game improvement without forcing a real dramatic conflict that in many ways does break ideal gameplay. I mean, if you look at the original 1991 game, that really was the only way you got better was you killed and ate another vampire. And that was, that was hard to do. And it was made even harder by the fact that back in those days, there were relatively few other things you could convince yourself were as important. Um, it was very, very focused on that. So just by uh, every successive edition expanded the realm of things you could do as a vampire of one generation, just so that the game didn't become a savage war of all against all, where the character's first immediate question is, how do we break the setting? Um, that That's still, I think, the question of a lot of uh, player characters, and that's one of the reasons that the Anarchs, are a playable group in, in, in this edition and sort of oh, you the co-default with the Camarilla. So that if you already wanted to break the setting, you're like, yeah, we know we're going to hunt down and eat another vampire. It's like, now you have an excuse and a reason you're anarchs. You just hate the prince and all of his, uh, fell doings go to. Now, did your, um, player base include enough, uh, new to vampire groups that you could sense what the different cultural assumptions were, or was that, I'm just not the case. I mean, I, it's it's hard to say. We had we had some people who are new to vampire. We had mixed tables. We had a bunch of different people with different sorts of responses. I I was not like first responder to play tests. Those would go up through uh, uh, Kareem and through Sweden, and then I would be sort of they would boil all that stuff down and give me sort of hey, it seems like people want this, people want that. So I don't really have a sense me sitting in my chair of new people wanted X, but old uh, school people wanted why, except that I talked to a lot of people in, in, you know, game shops and new people would say, we want, you know, we, we want to be able to understand the, the backstory. Uh, we were scared by 30 years of supplements and old school people would say, you change one word of one of those holy supplements and by God, I will, I will eat you in the night. And so it's sort of a, a <laughs> people who are really bought into the setting, unsurprisingly, really love the setting and, and want uh, every detail of the setting to remain uh, pristine and intact as they spent uh, mastery to to learn it. People who are new to the setting are challenged by that. So it wasn't even we want to yes or no be able to buy disciplines faster. It was very much a 
how do we interact with the setting type questions? And again, that is it, that that was sort of baked into the into the game from 1991. Well, I believe what I've gone and done is uh, swerved us off to a new topic. You have, and uh, and we all know, uh, listeners, what happens uh, when uh, when that occurs, which is that we uh, get in our hut shifting vehicle and uh, shift from this hut to see what uh, might possibly be lurking on the other side. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touched the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Height, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green, the role-playing game, to the award-winning gumshoe engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green, available for pre-order now in the Pelgrane Press store. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe, what are you waiting for? The end of the world? It's time once more to ask Ken and Robin, and this time around, Patreon backer Neil Dalton asks Ken, while uh, Robin, I guess, just sits back and enjoys a refreshing beverage, Ken, how did you decide on using 13th Age for your current campaign? It seems that when you present your group with possible campaigns, you present them with systems already attached. So, what leads to these choices? Um, in this particular case, uh, and in most cases, what happens is the players and I talk about the kinds of game we want to see in the sense of what do they want the players to be? What's the setting? What are the challenges? Do they want it to be a mission-based game? Do they want it to be a sandboxy game? Do they want it to be, you know, a, a quest hub and spoke? What's What sort of game structure and game uh, activity do they want to do? Every so often, and certainly, you know, I could run Unknown Armies from now until the end of time, and Zach would be a thousand percent for that. He just loves that game as well. He should. It's terrific. So sometimes Zach will say, how about an Unknown Armies game where we do X? Or one of the other players will say, how about, you know, it's been a while, let's maybe tackle Nobilis or whatever the the game that sort of bubbles around in their head. But by and large, we come up with a bunch of different things that people would like to do in types of games. And I boil that massive input down to four or five campaigns that I think I would like to run. And once I've figured out the campaigns, I figure out what game rule set works best for them. So uh, after the, after the last one, we wanted something that was more focused, more, um, uh, more mission specific. Uh, Greg wanted something involving third century BC Sicily, all of that sort of boiled down together to become the uh, suggestion of 
uh, the Hellenistic Age only in D&D. And rather than do D&D, I wanted to do 13th Age because I like 13th Age uh, as a GM. It, it imposes so much less of a cognitive load on the, the Game Master that comparing 13th Age to any of the other wonderful D&Ds is a no-brainer for me. And uh, my players had enjoyed the very little bit of it that we'd played when we, I was playtesting for Bestiary. So they were saying, yeah, sure, why not? And that sort of is how we decided that 13th Age. But 13th Age was what I assigned to Pokil Hellenistica. It wasn't the player care, players all said, let's play 13th Age. Ken, go off and come up with a 13th Age concept, if that makes any sense. Right. Do you recall off the top of your head what some of the other options were and what the uh, systems that went with those options were, were and, and why? As a matter of fact, Rob and I can. Uh, one of them was a game where uh, the players were all going out from the Library of Babel from uh, Jorge Luis Borges, and they were collecting books that uh, uh, the library didn't have yet. And that was it was basically very straight up, go to a place, have an adventure, don't really care about that place, come back type uh, mission-focused game. And because it was anytime, anywhere, anything, uh, I suggested Savage Worlds because mostly it's much faster uh, to run or at least to build things in than GURPS, which would have been the other logical solution. Uh, another suggestion was the Griffins of Califern, which is the exploration of the American continents only as a D&D campaign and in which you are uh, looking for Prester John and um, uh, the uh, High Brazil and Sibylla and Estodaland and Norumbega and Califern and all the magical places people put in the Americas before they knew better those all exist. And so there's, uh, you know, giants and uh, wizards and pirates. And that again was going to be a 13th age game because that was the notion, uh, was to do D and D only not D and D necessarily. I suggested the supers game, uh, agents of saber, S A B E R, the special army bureau for extraordinary research. And, uh, it's modern day supers in a, in a sort of geopolitically, uh, aware world. So you're fighting, um, uh, buried Nazi sentient tanks in Syria that the Assad regime is digging up, or ISIS has were hyenas, clone psychic supermen in North Korea, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That kind of a thing. Um, sort of Marvel Silver Age in the way that Marvel set stuff in the real world before they discovered that that was a great way to get angry letters from people. <laughs> and, and it's group your continuity by having the characters all be 80. Right, yes. That's the other problem with that. And again, it's just a matter of, since I know it's a supers game, what supers system did I want to run it in? And I thought Icons Assembled would be a good one to try out. I think that's a pretty good compromise between uh, all of the complex options of your of your hero systems and the way too grainy uh, systems that, that other supers games give. Plus, I, I really like Steve Kenson's design chops, so that would have been a chance to play that. We may, I may bring that one back, uh, after this one is done, just because I kind of still want to play, uh, something with icons, uh, and it may be a suggestion. And then the final choice was, in fact, what we wound up playing, Poikila Hellenistica, which I originally named Big Eyes Archaic Smile to indicate that it was a, uh, a anime Hellenistic era. Uh, but they sort of knew that already because they'd heard me go off on, on the topic. Right. And so the, the common thread here, uh, and here's the secret of being a game designer. Uh, who does it full time is that if you are uh, writing uh, or editing or uh, whatevering uh, a game uh, project during the day as your job, the amount of prep time that you have before your players show up is fairly limited, and also the amount of brain space you have is finite. So uh, I too always look for the simplest possible thing 
that I can uh, run on the fly without having to do a lot of advanced uh, preparation. Uh, and uh, now I'm much more likely than you to be just constantly running whatever new system it is that I've been uh, working on. But even when I am not, uh, you know, having a little break uh, come up, uh, my uh, desire is not to then go and uh, learn someone else's beautiful and fascinating uh, rule system. It's to treat a break as a break. So what we'll probably be doing is going to a short uh, drama system series yet again, because players all love drama system. And uh, as a GM, not only uh, do you not have to prepare very much for drama system, but you can't prepare for drama system. Preparing is actually a literal waste of time. Yes. It's, uh, uh, it's, it's actually, uh, counterproductive to plan, uh, as if I've designed a number of games to suit my own issues. But of course, uh, as those of us, uh, you know, many of us are now entering the uh, progressive lens generation and, and along with that comes busy schedules. And so, uh, you know, I think, uh, trying to fill a market for kind of easy prep uh, games where you can easily make up the stats for a character or there's, you know, very little to do ahead of time is a, is a big attraction there. Um, and so how far are you into Pokula Helenisca? How far are you until you're going to have to uh, uh, turn the odometer again and do something else? Well, the players are just, they just earned sixth level by going through um, uh, a reskinned version of Dragons of Despair, the first ever Dragonlance dungeon, which transpires that it was actually a really, I mean, first of all, dungeon technology, if you haven't dungeoned in a while, people, dungeoning rules. It is a great core activity, and there is a reason that the game in which you dungeon is the most popular game. Dungeoning rocks on toast. It is magnificent. I hadn't dungeoned in in a good long time, and, and having dungeoned now, I'm finding it very hard to resist just making them dungeon endlessly. So, again, I'm going to leave it up to the players, and they get to decide what they want to do, because that's the way I roll. But, man, is dungeoning cool. So, we just finished that dungeon. They they went into it at fifth level, and they, it, was, it was very hard fought, and they made many good decisions and were uh, very good heroes. And so, they'll be sixth level uh, basically when they finished the politics in Ephesus that sent them down into the dungeon in the first place. And another advantage of, of dungeoning is that it basically puts on hold your arc so that, uh, you know, if you have an overall continuity and some direction where the game is going to go, you know, you know, ultimately it's going to be a battle with the, the giants for the uh, fate of the peninsula or whatever it is that, uh, the time they spend in the dungeon, they are getting more powerful to go and do that thing. But that is something that you can stretch out or telescope uh, according to your pacing needs pretty well uh, at will. Whereas something that is more focused on intrigue and an obvious plot that is advanced every session, that eventually the story will take over from you and tell you when it's going to end. And I've had the experience on a couple of occasions of, oh, the perfect ending for this series is now much sooner than I had planned for this to happen with my life schedule, but here we go. This is obviously the ending. And so dungeoning is a great way to uh, move the uh, ending further away from the beginning, essentially at will while people are still having fun and don't feel that they're just, you're just marking time because as you said, dungeoning, right. Uh, dungeoning is, uh, is great fun. So now, uh, like I say, we're at sixth level now. I don't know if you guys, have played 13th age, but 13th age 
six level characters are super powerful. They are very, they're nigh impossible to kill, frankly. And they're very, very powerful. They have, uh, you know, these guys are now the equivalent of a little panzer unit driving around the Hellenistic world. And so the goal is for them to figure out what it is they want to do and then go do it. And they kind of know what they are supposed to be doing. And I think that they've just uh, been having so much fun screwing around that they don't necessarily want to go all the way up, but at some level they're going to hit 10th level. And then, you know, once they're there, we kind of have to say, all right, it, it, that that's sort of the point where we stop and take stock and say, do you guys want to go for the final, you know, ridiculous level of power in 13th age or is, is 10th level where we're going to end it and you've accomplished what you need to accomplish and we, and we roll the dice and play another game. It's time for bards and barbarians to put away childish things and go get jobs uh, running the place. And on that conclusive note, uh, let's uh, see what our next exciting commercial and therefore our next exciting segment happen to contain. What did Isaac Newton discover in an alternate 1666? He discovered the way that alchemical truths... That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 3 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. Get an experience bonus for philanthropy, alongside such Patreon backers as... Jacques de Villiers. Joe Webb. Ludovic Chabant. Paul Richmond. And, as it readies its flaming boat for a journey to Game Store Valhalla, Modern Myths. The compass rose in the corner, the dragons in the margins, and the rum lines stretching to infinity welcome us once more into that most elegant of huts, the purest and most noble and hardest to fill of huts, the cartography hut. But Robin, you found something in the topic of the Cornell University persuasive map collection. And um, we're here, and I guess we're here to talk about that collection and the whole concept of persuasive cartography, which is such a much nicer way than saying propaganda cartography or uh, the classic of the field, how to lie with maps, which if right. anyone has not read it, they probably should 
um, I don't want to say rush, but I would say move at, at all speed, uh, to, uh, obtain and read it. I, I think there's less lying with the maps now just because newspapers are all dead and, uh, people don't usually embed maps in their angry screed on, on, uh, on the, on the emails or the, or, or whatever's, I mean, it's harder to put a map into a angry YouTube comment, isn't it? I, I don't know about that. Uh, but, uh, and, and, uh, we've actually done a whole segment previously on propaganda maps specifically. Mm-hmm. And I think the key here is that pers- propaganda is a category of persuasion. And so right. I don't want to not mention propaganda maps in this segment because otherwise people will ask why we didn't. And it's a, ma- a big major component. And there's a really cool example of that involving an octopus. Yeah. So among the super cool maps uh, in this uh, collection are, are, and I guess the distinction here is that these are all maps who uh, sometimes they uh, have relatively accurate depictions of uh, whatever area they're, they're depicting, but their main point is not to show you how to get from A to B, but rather they're trying to uh, tell you something using the visual motif of a map and the emotional attachment we feel to our sense of territory and whether our territory is being invaded or whether our territory is being uh, poisoned. And uh, one visual motif that you see again and again in maps where the uh, viewer of the map is supposed to be afraid that you are being invaded is the octopus. Because, of course, just visually, uh, octopuses are scary and creepy. You know, uh, they are going to rise from the depths and and their gods are going to take us over one day. We all know that. Um, and also the, the uh, multi-limbed uh, nature of the, the octopus with its tentacles are easy to stretch uh, anywhere on the globe you want to show uh, people uh, being, being threatened. And so one of the cool examples that you'll be able to click on from the link in the show notes is uh, from the Sino-Japanese War, where the uh, where Russia, uh, this is drawn up by a Japanese student, and so, uh, of course, that means Russia is the octopus, so it's standing up there on top of the map, and its uh, uh, tentacles are uh, twisting down into a, a China with tormented faces and an unfortunate monk, and they're uh, strangling a Persian, and uh, the uh, the Turks are lying down in... Uh, in a field of skulls, or actually, they kind of look like uh, yellow signs from the Yellow King. Hmm. Wonder mm. what's up with that. Mm. The the Constantinople supplement is writing itself as we speak. Yes, another thank God, tenic- because neither of us has time to write it. Yes, it's, <laughs> yes, exactly. When, once we get the self writing supplements, that'll seem good for a while. Um, and so uh, that's definitely an example of you know an, a really cool uh, grabber of an image that. Uh, because we think of maps in uh, role-playing as here's an accurate map of this place so that the players can get a sense of what the world is like. And there's a reason for that. Uh, but, of course, in the world that they live in, many of the maps would not be accurate. And also many of the maps would not really be maps at all. They would be attempts to get you to think a certain way, the way that this propaganda map is to make you afraid of Russia. Because it's an octopus, man. It's an octopus. It's an octopus. Yeah. Who wouldn't be afraid of that? And of course, there's other, uh, maps from that collection that show Japan as an octopus, that show, I don't know if it's in this map, uh, collection specifically, but there is a famous map showing the trusts in America as octopuses. 
uh, going out to, to, to uh, drain America's uh, lifeblood with their blood draining tentacles in the way octopuses don't. Um, it, it, the octopus is, is very, very solid. There's probably a book. I'm sure there must be a book by now, but there ought to be a book about just the octopus as an element of cartographic horror uh, because it's so strong and so often uh, noticed. Uh, there's communist octopuses uh, in the 50s and 60s, just endless uh, numbers of, of octopodes in these things. And of course, if you're playing a Cthulhu game, the true significance of the map uh, is self-explanatory. Um, there's uh, a lot of other really cool maps in the uh, Cornell collection. One of them is the Awakening Suffrage map, uh, which not only is a really arresting image, but uh, taught me a history fact I didn't know, which is that uh, suffrage uh, went from west to east across America. And yeah. so uh, Lady Suffrage, with her, her torch and her outstretched arm, obviously a friend of Wonder Woman's, is uh, marching across the uh, western and, uh, and mountain states, which have suffrage, uh, toward the uh, the dark uh, rest of the country in which the uh, uh, women are, are rising from the map, yearning to be freed and to gain universal suffrage. So that's a, a really great uh, killer example of uh, the map. Again, uh, in this case, not uh, showing an encroaching contagion, but an encroaching liberation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is meant to be an inspiring map and make uh, you... Uh, in the black part of the map where you are presumably the, the yearning masses waiting for, for lady suffrage to approach, uh, to give you inspiration and to want to complete that map and fill it out and, and add more suffrage states to it. Yeah. That, that's in the sort of crossover, I guess, between maps and editorial cartooning in a way, because it's not really a map of, Oh, I wonder which states have suffrage. It's very much an editorial cartoon. But it does so by using Americans' familiarity with their own country's geography as a persuasive tool. And it happens to have this sort of wonderful sense of uh, liberty beginning in the West, the West being the frontier where we're all, all, you know, human freedom goes to, 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 to flourish and then coming back East. Uh, where the huddled masses, it, it plays with a lot of really great concepts in American, you know, sort of culture and American cultural historiography. And it's also just a super attractive, well-drawn map and, uh, good for it. Right. And there are a lot of images that are, uh, that are on the other side of the, the barrier between maps and editorial cartoons. And, uh, certainly, you know, the, the use of maps in editorial cartoons, uh, is part of the, uh, you know, the cartoonists, uh, book of iconography in order to very quickly uh, con- convey uh, ideas about what's going on in a story. So any uh, cartoon that has a geopolitical implication in it, the cartoonist, if they haven't used a map or a globe, they were tempted to and perhaps uh, settle on a less hacky idea. I mean, they were. Uh, they, th- there's another map in there uh, called The Silver Dog with the Golden Tail. And it's about the states that believe in bimetallism in the sense of free coinage of silver and the states that don't. And the states that don't, look at them. They're all in the Northeast. They're all the worst states. They're full of <laughs> gold mongers. Yes. And the yes. states that believe in silver are the dog. They're the good old doggy. And how can you be mad at the doggy, even though he looks It, it does mix the metaphor creepy. that it's it's the ass end, but it's also the golden end. So Right, yeah. But it's I mean, it's got a um, – uh, it, 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 that's another editorial cartoon done as a map. Uh, and another quite fun one, I think. Other themes uh, of the the maps in this collection that can browse through include uh, love and marriage. Uh, so uh, you talked a couple of weeks ago uh, with Alex Roberts about the uh, maps of uh, the art of love depicted as a an assault 
on a Renaissance uh, uh, fortress. So there's a, a couple of examples of that in there. One is called The Attack of Love. And uh, for those who have already stormed the fortress, there's The Island of Marriage, uh, <laughs> which includes uh, such... Uh, so it's uh, an, an imaginary map, an imaginary place. Uh, and, uh, of, of course, it's an allegory. And it's all about the places that you want to avoid. You don't want them on the map of your marriage, or you want to stay in the, the happy part of the map and avoid, for example, the Port of Divorcio, and, of course, the ever-popular Mountain of Relatives. Yeah, yeah, you maybe don't, maybe don't do that um, uh, so much. <laughs> the, the notion of running a, uh, a sort of a silver locky type game where your characters find themselves here and discover that, oh, this is a metaphor for our marriage. That's why we're going and, and having such a hard time up here in um, uh, Malcontenti, the, the northern part of, of our marriage. <laughs> the, the 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 mysterious island of Begamia up in the northwest. I don't know if we want to go there or not go there. That's it seems like a dark island on this map. Yeah, so m- maybe Alex can do a uh, sequel to Starcross called Island Bound. Island the, Bound. Uh, yes. After you've established your relationship and uh, and uh, now it's all going to seed. There are uh, other maps of places that uh, either do or don't exist, depending on your point of view. So there's a cross section of hell. From the Dante's Inferno, so of course uh, there's an implicit message there. Yeah, <laughs> if, if nothing else, I like the map of the world in 2348 BC, showing pretty much all of the world except Utah, I guess, covered by the flood. <laughs> I, I think that's Utah. I'm not yeah, sure. I, yeah, that, that isn't that just a map of Utah? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> with, with added water, it's no longer landlocked. Yeah, no, it, it shows it shows Eden and Ararat and the land of Nod and Havila and Kush, but that looks like the Great Salt Lake to me. Um, uh-huh. uh, that's this. So, so I think that that's a fun uh, Mormon uh, persuasion map. But I just love the notion of a world map showing the world the time of the deluge. <laughs> that's just so awesome. There is also a reformist map. So you get uh, there's a map of. Uh, a particular ward in Chicago with the color-coded uh, buildings marking which ones of them are dens of vice and yeah. which vice in particular they are dens of. That's uh, the Levy District in Chicago, for those who are wondering. Yes. Uh, there's also, of course, the distribution of drunkenness in England and Wales in 1904, uh, where the different counties are marked uh, darker as they become drunker. And uh, if you're guessing which ones are drunker, you're correct. <laughs> <laughs> now, not all persuasive maps succeed in persuading. Uh, for example, he who wants to change the world must first learn Esperanto. <laughs> that one, that one didn't pan out. Yeah, it's weird. Maybe if the map had been a little more persuasive or it had been in Esperanto. Right. So before we get to my favorite map discovery, which arguably has the slenderest connection to our putative topic. Do you have any other maps that you would like to, to highlight? I mean, the, the whole the, the whole website is terrific. Uh, there's there's plenty of great ones. I mean, I think uh, some of my favorites are the you know if you don't stop the Nazis, here they come uh, type maps where we have the sort of the purported uh, Nazi war plans or uh, Kaiser's war plans that have been dug up uh, to show. Uh, what the, what the, what the bad old, uh, Hun is up to. And, and some of them weren't so far off. No, I mean, it's, 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 and again, it's like, get color everything Nazi red. That's what Hitler wants. Yep. I think you've, you've nailed Hitler right there. Good job, map guy. But, yeah, uh, n- not all propaganda is false. Yes, exactly. Yeah. If you're, if you're saying Nazis be greedy bad folk, then it turns out you're not wrong. 
Um, but, the, but I, I like those because they've got that sort of great, um, mid-century, uh, graphic look to them as, as well as being, uh, just kind of terrific. Uh, even the map of Alaska that is purportedly just a map of Alaska showing how great Alaska is manages to put a lot of Soviet air bases on the map just so we all know why you need Alaska and why other countries are maybe not so good. And, uh, there's even on that map of Alaska, one of my favorite things is, uh, for Sitka, which is a little town in Alaska and used to be the capital of Russian America, uh, before Alaska was sold to America, um, by the czar, uh, there's a little prince that says Sitka, Russian capital. And I know that if you're looking at that map in 1958, you're going, Russian cow, bet they want it back, those Russians. And, <laughs> And it's just a great example. And it's also a beautiful map. I mean, the fonts are really good. It's just a lovely piece of art that is also a map of how Alaska is America's front line against uh, communist aggression, which, in fact, it is. My favorite map, though, in this uh, collection uh, is an example of commercial persuasion. It's a map that is supposed to uh, prompt you to purchase the uh, hog farming supplies of H.W. Hill and Company. Uh, they're sole manufacturers of Hills Hog, uh, Calf and Cow Wieners. Uh, and, uh, they have, uh, uh, ringers. They have Hills Triangular Rings. And they have stock markers. And of course, everything that we as hog farmers, uh, assume go with that. So they, uh, are a manufacturer of hog supplies. But what they have is the nicknames of the states. And so it's a, a map of the, the U.S. with, of course, a sinister mask looking sort of yellow king kind of clown in one corner and uh like you and do. then a uh a pig holding a uh a sinister a grabbing hook in the other and then each of the states has its own pig caricature nickname uh, associated with it and some of them are the obvious ones that you would think so of course the uh Ohio has the buckeye pig mm-hmm. and uh Minnesota has the uh, has the badger, and Utah's uh, nickname Minnesota? is Utah. Right. Yes. <laughs> well, you know, as we said before, Utah. Yeah. Um, now uh, you'll be pleased to know, and I'm sure you looked right away that and found out that Illinois is the sucker, uh, and the pig for that is sort of a fat, content-looking pig. He's disgorging a rope and holding a lantern. Yeah. Now. Uh, this immediately strikes him as, yes, of course, that's Illinois, but also, what the hell? <laughs> Can you shed light on this sucker? I have no idea. First of all, <laughs> it's, a, it's a common misapprehension, and people get it. I mean, I see, <laughs> even in Chicago, I see the flags of the state of Illinois for some reason. People are under the impression that Chicago has anything to do with the state of Illinois except battening on its farmland. And that's literally the connection I've, that we have. I've heard the same thing about Berlin not really being part of Germany, but it's right. the other way around. Exactly. So, you know, as far as I'm, as far as I'm aware, you know, past, uh, O'Hare airport, yeah, pretty much Illinois is all disgorging rope and holding lanterns. That may be everything that they do. I don't know why the WHW Hill and company thought that in 1884, the way to sell more feed in Illinois was to call them the pig suckers, but maybe that was a proud, um, uh, statement. Uh, Kentucky's pig, the corn cracker is just drinking bourbon and lying around. Uh, Missouri is the puke state. Well, uh, granted, if, if you're a pig and you go to Chicago, you are a sucker. You are a something sucker. something bad is going yeah, to happen to that's you That's not going to be good for you. But Missouri is the puke state. It's the puke. It, yeah. it's, a, it's a hurling pig hurling yeah. over the fence. Uh, in the Kansas pig is the jayhawker who's holding a gun on another pig and getting ready to rob him. And the most formidable of the pigs is uh, in Arkansas, the toothpick. 
Uh, but he has like a big dagger that's like half the size of his body. That's more than a toothpick. That's because the, the I can actually shed some light on that. Yeah. The, the the Bowie knife is known as the Arkansas toothpick. Ah, there we go. So the designer may have thought literally the only time I've ever heard of Arkansas is in connection with Bowie knives. Maybe it's the toothpick state. Right. The most disturbing of the pigs is the Texan beef head, which <laughs> has the horns of longhorn cattle. Uh, and he's holding the printed on our own advertising department uh, sign. As well, so he's he's in good. He may be the tastiest of the pigs, though. I mean, yes, he's got a beef head. Got- That's good stuff. <laughs> yeah, he's he's uh, sort of a buffet in one pig. Um, and so obviously, the I'm sure you thought of this too, Ken. The obvious gaming use for this map is to just print it out on silk on a board and have a board game called Kill America's Famous Pigs. <laughs> and so what you'd have to do is uh, the different players. You start with your meeples. Uh, they're randomly assigned to you what state you start out on, and you pick at the beginning of the game uh, which of the different uh, pig killer characters you get. And each of these pigs has their own uh, special attacks and defenses that interacts differently with your character. And then you just uh, hop around the map uh, trying to uh, kill the majority of the pigs before your competitors do. Yeah, it's, it's about uh, pig slaughter as opposed to pig feeding. It's sort of the... right. We're day-touring this map. Yeah, sort of more of a D&D sort of, uh, you know, these these pigs are obviously stopping uh, the... Well, uh, maybe maybe here's here's what it is. Maybe it's a game where you can either feed pigs or kill them, and you're like, oh, if I can get to this pig after it's fattened up, I'll get more pig points for killing it than if I just go right out and kill the craw thumper in Maryland straight up. And if I can uh, there you feed go. him... Right, because I was going to say, that how Canadian of you to... to turn kill America's famous pigs into kill and or feed America's famous pigs, but you're just prepping them for more points later. And that gives the other players a chance to like get in the, the pig you fed, they can come in and get your pig and then all of your feeding turns have been wasted. Right. Well, I think we better get right on the design of this project. Yeah. And, I think uh, that this is, the- this is the next big breakout game. Um, CMON, if you're listening to this, you know, we're open. Our DMs are open. Right. Okay. Uh, well, we'll have to work out which one of us runs the Kickstarter, but uh, in the meantime, it we have uh, yet another hut to dig up. When I think Delta Green, Arc Dream's classic and newly revived role-playing game of rogue intelligence operatives against the Cthulhu Mythos, I think paranoia, go-bags, guns... And opera! Uh, say what now? Delta Green, A Night at the Opera. Six terrifying scenarios for Delta Green, the role-playing game. Reverberations. Viscid. Music from a darkened room. Extremophilia. The Star Chamber. And Observer Effect. Written by Dennis Detwiller, Shane Ivey, and Greg Stoltze, these scenarios have been available only in PDF and in standalone paperback modules. Get them in a full-color hardback to match your agent's handbook and the upcoming Handler's Guide. Delta Green, A Night at the Opera is available to pre-order at shop.arcdream.com. It ain't over till the fat lady reveals herself as a servitor of Yagalanak. The wearing of the pith helmet, the swinging of the axe, and, uh, in this case, the repatriation of looted artifacts tell us that we're once more in that uh, most ancient and dusty huts, the archaeology hut. And this time around, uh, Patreon backers Yuri Horniman and Rich Vinalo 
And let's face it, everyone... Pretty much everyone on the internet. Yes, everyone on the internet have asked us to tackle the uh, revelation, uh, the latest revelation in in an ongoing story that started in 2009, uh, Hobby Lobby, the U.S. retail chain that specializes in uh, craft supplies like your felt and your googly eyes, has been implicated, or rather uh, charged, fined $3 million and forced to return... Uh, a raft of artifacts that it helped organize the looting of uh, in Iraq in the uh, wake of the chaos of the Iraq War. Um, and this, this hall includes thousands of clay bulli and seals from the Parthian and Sasanian empires. Uh, it's about 2,000 years old. And also 450 cuneiform tablets, about 4,000 years old, uh, from Sumeria. And let's not bury the lead. Some of these contain magical incantations. Yes. Uh, so I guess, first of all, we have to acknowledge that the esoterrorist is real. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that, uh, uh, the first edition of Esoterrorist has a, one of the Ordo Veritatis agents on the cover going down into a creaky basement. And then the second edition cover is that same character a few seconds later when they realize that in the basement is this vast, uh, what looks like an Assyrian, but could well be Sumerian, freeze on the wall. Well, what hasn't been revealed until now is that that's the basement of a Hobby Lobby right. location. Yeah. Uh, probably somewhere in Peoria. The, the, the Hobby Lobby guy actually has a uh, museum of the Bible that he's put in Washington, D.C., and he wanted yep. uh, cool Bible-y stuff to put there. And uh, being a guy whose expertise is selling different kinds of yarn and string, not necessarily Assyriology, he turned to a guy in Israel who said, oh, yeah, I got Bible stuff from the land of Ur of the Chaldees, where Abraham was born. And he says, well, Abraham's in the Bible. Let's get some Ur of the Chaldees stuff. And that's how he got all of these cool uh, tablets. And they were something on the order of, what was it, 5,500 uh, pieces of, of antiquities, uh, as, as you mentioned, um, some of them containing incantations, although again, some of them also containing grain prices. They span the, the time frame from the era of Ur 3, which is actually a little bit before Abraham's time, if I have my Urs correct, uh, all the way down to the post, uh, Roman, uh, Sasanian Empire that gets, uh, knocked on its tea kettle by the, uh, uh Saracens, by the Arabs. Uh, in the seventh uh, century AD, so we go the whole spectrum, which implies to me that someone during the invasion got themselves a backhoe and dug into that cool-looking mound that they saw from their city and just emptied it out. And indeed, uh, the the city of Irisagrig, which is a city that, that people have seen mentioned in other uh, tablets but have never known where it was. Um, it started showing up everywhere after 2003. People started seeing tons and tons of these Irisa Grig tablets just pop out, which makes me think that after 2003, yes, uh, during the invasion, some guy did a little uh, amateur archaeology, if you will, and looted the heck out of a mound that happened to be either over Irisa Grig or very near Irisa Grig, so that they were getting lots of Irisa Grig uh, records. And to the extent that you can piece together where that was it was somewhere near Nippur, which is in southern Iraq now. Um, but we don't know because it's a mystery and because probably where whatever was there has been bulldozed and uh, we may never know. Right. And that, of course, is the, the great problem of looting, not only that the artifacts themselves are uh, carried off and uh, in this case, uh, naively put on slated for public display, uh, but that the 
archaeological context of the artifacts is destroyed forever, so that even if you get back all of the tablets, you still don't know where this city is, and you can't learn anything about uh, the city and the people who live there, and uh, the uh, you, you can't piece the puzzle pieces together because they've been ripped out of the box and thrown up in the air and uh, and stomped on and, and bulldozed and backhard. And one of the interesting things, I mean, speaking of, this is like the all-Cornell issue of Ken and Robin, um, go insert Cornell mascot here. But there's a guy at Cornell who's a professor of Near Eastern Studies named David Owen who has made a hobby of, not a hobby, I guess made his actual career, of finding all Irisa Grigg mentions. And sometimes people will like put a thing up on eBay and say, hey, I've got a cuneiform tablet. And David Owen will go and he'll, you know, screenshot it and translate it and put it into his uh, his database of Irisa Grigg inscriptions. He's got two volumes of Irisa Grigg texts and one imagines, and in fact, uh, they went and they quoted him uh, in Vice as saying, "It, you know, yes, they should all go back to Iraq. Uh, it was bad to loot, no, no, no good looting. But maybe could everyone photograph them first? Can I, can I, can I maybe bore them just, yeah, just, just a little, a little bit? bit? And the, the the guy they brought in a different Assyriologist, not this guy, um, a guy named what was it, Eric Fron, something like that, or Fromm, Eckhart Fromm, um, and he he was sort of brought in to do the sort of um, I guess assessment to find out what it was that, uh, they were, the Hobby Lobby was being, uh, indicted for having stolen because you need to know that for the, for the court. Um, and so the Department of Homeland Security has an Assyriologist on tap. That's great news right there. There's your. As a terrorist is real. As a terrorist is real. Um, and he was brought in. He said that he was allowed to look at about half of them or that he only had time to look at about half of them. Um, I, I don't know if there were secret artifacts that they weren't showing him or if it was just, here's a big room full of artifacts. Go nuts, professor. But he's, he, he's the reason that we know, A, that Iris Agurig is part of it. B, that there's, you know, all the various types of things that there were. Um, he saw things that he's, I think he was quoted as saying, it's not the, you know, it's, it's not the, the lost, uh, lines of Gilgamesh, but, you know, it's not nothing. Right. And there is, of course, the, you know, it's not like Iraq is, uh, totally Pacific at this point. So. Or is liable to be in the future. Yes. Or is liable to be in the future or that, uh, everybody, uh, working there is above board. So the possibility remains that these will, uh, go back to Iraq and then be redistributed. Yeah, re-looted. Um, yet again. But it's not up to Hobby Lobby no. to uh, to be the ones doing uh, preemptive looting to prevent others uh, who don't have Bible museums from from doing. The but looting. it does. But it does raise the the sort of the question of where is your line drawn? Because if you look, for example, at the priceless collection of Buddhist termas that was uncovered by Sir Oral Stein in Xinjiang and looted or stolen or carried away for a nominal sum, depending on who you le- believe, those areas where he took those termas from were obliterated by the communists during the civil war. And then during Mao's period of, we don't believe in traditional religion. And if Orlstein had not looted them, those termas would be gone. They would have been set on fire by a red guard at some point. So, you know, who, who knows? I think that the notion of at the very least, the department of Homeland security could have taken a couple of days and let Dr. Fromm photograph everything. That that doesn't seem unreasonable to me. What do you think, Robin? That doesn't seem unreasonable because that doesn't prevent them from being uh, repatriated right. and uh, and and doesn't you know if it's a matter of you know let's just hold on to these Elgin marbles for you uh, indefinitely. That's that's a different that's uh, a different question. Question, but uh, can we hold on to these and document them a, a little later? So, for example, if they're relooted, yeah, <laughs> we have you know sort of a quasi provenance for them. That's uh, 
uh, also a thing. But uh, I think there's a suspicion that if you just let uh, your uh, academic expert actually have the physical things for a while, that they will also uh, not return in a, in a speedy fashion. Well, anyone who's ever worked in an academic library knows that's not a suspicion. That's actual fact. Right. If you let an academic have a book, forget it. It's gone. Yes. <laughs> you, you you made textual what I was making sometextual. That's my job. Right. And so, as far as gamifying this goes, as a terrorist <laughs> How is <do> real. How not? <laughs> yeah. Um, the uh, thinly disguised uh, uh, lawsuit avoiding equivalent of uh, the Hobby Lobby guy with his museum is a, a, a completely different, unrecognizable person with a different museum uh, somewhere else in Washington, D.C. And, of course, the incantations are, well, we've talked about things writing themselves several times in this podcast, <laughs> yes. but... <laughs> Esoterus is real people. Yeah, right. This is this is this is a badly handled veil out. This is not actually a scenario seed. <laughs> uh, yeah. This, in fact, the scenario may be uh, this thing that's gone widely public. Uh, go in and veil it out some more. Yeah. And then, of course, the monster gets summoned, so that it would be a fun uh, flip on the adventure format where you start out trying to veil something out, and then the mystery, uh, which has gotten too far out again. Uh, you know, resurges and uh, some other thing, some other incantation gets read. And of course, that's the reason earlier we were naively saying, photograph all of these tablets and leave them for posterity. Whereas we know some of the tablets were photographed or scanned or whatever, and then others weren't. Well, Esoteris is real. There's an Assyriologist working for Homeland Security. They carefully made sure that the demon summoning ones did not get photographed because right. then you have a JPEG or, you know, a high-res TIFF file that you can download and then, uh, you know, summon uh, uh, blood dogs or whatever. And uh, that is, uh, you know, to be avoided. That's, you know, uh, pretty high up in the uh, Homeland Security org chart. No demon summoning. No one wants scorpion men. Although, that's kind of an interesting question, right? Let's say that these incantation tablets uh, actually allow you to summon scorpion men, and we both know that they actually absolutely do. Do the scorpion men who are coming from the outer dark as conceptualized in 2500 BC, do they have their own agenda that modern day esoterists recognize? Is it like, hey, all outer dark is good outer dark? Or is there like a, a rivalry between the people who are like, scorpion men, isn't that a little, you know, passe? And they would rather have blood dogs. And so is it blood dogs v scorpion men for the soul of Cornell University? What's going on? Is, is there... Can we add a second layer of depth, I guess, to the entirely obvious uh, text, as you put it, of this adventure? Right. So the the, the esoteric way of doing it is the outer dark entities get an alarm going off that, oh, there's a summoning, the membrane is opening. Oh, they expect scorpion men. Okay, who can reshape themselves to look sort of scorpiony for a while? And then once we get over the other side and we find these humans and decide whether they're useful and whether we want to, uh, you know, eat their souls or uh, set them up as a, as a, a mercenary company or get them to work uh, disseminating means, means on the Internet so that it's some other kind of demon that is for a while is posing as, as Scorpion Man. And then the Order Veritatis, they get to fight the Scorpion Man version. And then if they get close enough to the point where, oh, well, this is where you actually kill a Scorpion Man. Oh, okay, no, but then it dissipates and then it turns into the real thing and it turns out to be, you know... a, a Grave Eater or whatever, the the bigger, scarier, more Clive Barkery, H.R. Giggery uh, demon turns out to really be. Mm -hmm. 
so so basically they're all uh, they're all in on it together there's not rivalries amongst the outer dark gods there's not well there could very well be yeah um and uh because the you know it's not a single hierarchical you know it's it's uh it's postmodern uh distributed uh, uh demons eating the world so it could easily be that you know if you're the first outer dark entities to get there and uh or you know it could be that oh no they're calling scorpion man it's time okay we're gonna have to get we've put the this annoying scorpion man in, in a vault of torment for several millennia but we got to get them out and get them over out onto the other side and we'll you know we'll stick little parasites in them so we can control them and it might be uh, a whole uh, sort of big uh, political thing between uh, different you know the Outer dark entities, they, they obey the rules of whatever plot line you need. So if you need a, a conflict between them, uh, you know, they they mostly just want to eat the world and the people in it. So, uh, you know, they, they might compete to do that. Sure. Right. Um, so I guess the other sort of thing that's left out is the notion of this lost city of Erith Sagrig. Is there some way that we can use that in a, in a specific uh, esoterist context? Is there a, a notion that maybe there was a city called Irisagrig that was just the city that the Outer Dark had taken over back in 2100 BC and everyone, that's the reason it, no one wrote down in directions as to how to get there is because they didn't want anyone going there to be, you know, subsumed, uh, by the, by the Outer Dark. And, or is it that Irisagrig is just Cleveland and no one cared where it was? As nonlinear entities. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lost city might literally be lost. It might be misplaced. It might be somewhere else. It might be, say, for example, under a hobby lobby in Peoria. Right. And so what all of those, of course they can send back all of the tablets. They, uh, because they've already performed the great working to, uh, install the demon city of Irisigrig, uh, under the hobby lobby. And, uh, you know, then you've got this great, uh, mass of uh of demons swirling under Peoria and you can do a special suppression forces uh scenario or a campaign where you can be dungeoning your way through it uh in order to get to the end of the tunnels or the the end of the the buried city and uh find the button that you hit to make it go back to uh Iraq where it belongs. Well you go back then there's like um uh, the the one special one of those tablets that acts as the as the locus or the fixator that's the one that gets you know uh, snuck out of the Homeland Security warehouse and snuck either with the connivance of uh, not Steve Green to the not Hobby Lobby or the connivance of some other uh, wizard who was just using him as a dupe um, and then put under the Hobby Lobby. And the reason that they went through the Hobby Lobby is not necessarily because this guy's, you know, a weirdo for Abraham, but because that one Hobby Lobby is actually on a lane nexus in Peoria, Peoria, Illinois. The reason that it's so tiresome is that it's sitting right there on the lane nexus, and it has to be that mundane to hold down the lane nexus of of the outer dark. Right, or or they're just looking for a, somebody who owns extensive property with a big flat parking lot. It could so be that. Like, it could just be the parking. Along, steals it the it could be the parking. I, I, I always underestimate yeah. as a as an urbanite the, the how important parking, parking is. is in, Urban and demonic planning. In plan, in demonic planning. Well, uh, on that note, uh, the esoterrorists are real, and we'll be back for another podcast next week. 
Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Askfagown. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Prevent this ancient city from disappearing by joining such Patreon backers as... Phil Groff. Rafe Ball. Drew Clory. Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. And Anders Moline. Snag Ken and Robin Apparel and other erudite merchandise at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. The glowering portrait of Madame Blavatsky is now a t-shirt. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again we will talk about stuff. <laughs> <laughs>